Good evening and welcome again to our worship service. We're glad that you're present tonight. We're going to be looking in just a moment at the book of Daniel, chapter 6, and we're going to be talking about Throne to the Lions. And in our study tonight, we're going to be talking specifically about this great man by the name of Daniel. And really, Daniel was but a young man when he was taken into captivity along with many of his other Jewish comrades. And so we'll be looking at that. We're going to be looking specifically at chapter 6 as well as a couple of other chapters in our study. I appreciate so much the opportunity that we have to be together tonight. And as we look at our lesson together, I want us to think seriously and soberly about the times in which we find ourselves. And certainly, uh, these are difficult days for our country. And yet, I think there are some great lessons that we can learn from the life of Daniel. I want us to begin tonight by talking about Daniel and his promotion. Because the text tells us, if you look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, or officers, to be over the whole realm, and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one. What you have to understand is that the book of Daniel begins with the deportation, the evacuation of God's people. God's people were basically uprooted from Judah and taken to a foreign land. They were taken to the land of Babylon. If you go back and look with me for just a moment at Daniel chapter 1, Note, if you would, what is recorded in verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. The time would have been about 605 B.C. BC. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, for one, had threatened captivity for the people of God. They had, they had violated his law. They had been unfaithful to him. Jeremiah, the prophet, for one, pled with God's people to return to him. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah in chapter 6 said, Stand ye in the way and see, and ask for the old pass, wherein is the good way, and walk therein. And the promise was made, You shall find rest unto your souls. But Jeremiah said that their response was, We will not walk therein. And so God deported them. For some 70 years, they spent time in what we would call exile. Well, Daniel, along with three of his close friends, were among those who were deported to this foreign land. Nebuchadnezzar, as you well know, went into the southern kingdom of Judah. He destroyed the southern kingdom. And so this is a record of that, at least one of the records. But then the text tells us not only 
do we read of their evacuation, but specifically the Bible talks about the evaluation of this young man named Daniel. Look, if you would, at verse 3. Daniel, at least from my perspective, was a remarkable young man. And I think he set himself apart from the other people. In verse 3 it says that the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And so really what the king wanted to do was instruct and train these young men. As he said, in the literature and language of the Babylonian people. Well, Daniel was among one of those that would be trained as such. In verse 7, the text tells us, To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So these young men received Babylonian names. Now if you drop down and look at verses 17 and 17 through 21, note if you would the sterling reputation that is recorded of these young men and specifically Daniel. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And thus they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And that would have been about 539, 538 B.C. So, by way of evaluating Daniel, he was quite a man, quite a young man. He's probably about 17 years of age. He was made a eunuch. And he thrived, as we would say, in this foreign land. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to me that Daniel used, was used by God extensively in two world empires. I think God in his great providence used this man in a great way. And then I want you to think with me for just a moment or two about the elevation of Daniel. Now, if you look at chapter 2, you read of Nebuchadnezzar having a dream, and the Bible says that it troubled him deeply, so much so that his sleep left him. And thus, the text tells us he gave command to call the magicians and astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. They came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. But the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. Well, the bottom line is no one could interpret 
this dream, with the exception of a young Hebrew, a fellow by the name of Daniel. And so Daniel has the opportunity to stand before King Nebuchadnezzar. You have to understand that Nebuchadnezzar was a ruthless king. And yet there was a compassionate side to him. And so Daniel stands before, stands before the king. And if you look down in about verse 28, well, look at verse 27. Daniel answered in the presence of the king, and he said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king. But he said, There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. The bottom line, as you well know, Daniel interprets this dream. And in the interpretation of this dream, there are four world empires that he sees. As a result of this dream, Daniel identifies, first of all, the Babylonian kingdom, over which Nebuchadnezzar was head. And then he points out that the Babylonian empire would give way to the Medes and the Persians. And Darius would ultimately serve in that realm, later Cyrus. And then the Medes and the Persians would give way to the Grecian Empire, which would be followed by the Roman Empire. Well, years pass. Turn with me now, if you would, and look at chapter 6. We think about Daniel rising to power in the court of the Chaldeans, that is, in the Babylonian court. But now years have passed, and Daniel is no longer a young man. As a matter of fact, when the book is introduced, he's about 17. Now he's in his 80s. He's an old man. And here's what is said about Daniel. That he was made one of three governors. And the text says, over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps, the officials, might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. The king, the king gave thought to setting him over the whole empire. If you think about Daniel, he rises to great prominence in the court of the Chaldeans. Years later, he rises to prominence in the Medes and the Persian Empire. So he becomes a very powerful man. But here's what I want you to see in the second place. Think with me for a moment or two about the principles of Daniel. When I look at the life of Daniel, I see somebody that distinguished himself above others. That's what is said in chapter 6, verse 3. I want to begin by talking about his unadulterated conscience. Go back with me now and look at chapter 1. You remember Daniel's just a young man. He has been deported to a foreign land. And in this foreign land, requests are made of him. And in verse 8, here's what the text has to say about the king's delicacies. Some translations may say dainties. Back in verse 5, the king had appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, three years of training for them. So at the end of time, they might serve before the king. Now look at verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. 
Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Think about this for a minute. Here's Daniel in a foreign land, about 17 years of age. He's surrounded by foreign people. He is certainly in the minority. And yet, because Daniel has a tender conscience and a heart for God, he would not defile himself with the king's dainties. As a matter of fact, he would not eat or partake of anything that would have violated the law of Moses. You see, there were certain dietary restrictions given to the children of Israel. You can go back and read Leviticus chapter 11. Now somebody might say, well, that's just a minute thing. That's just a minor thing. Not to Daniel it wasn't. No, Daniel would not make any concessions, wouldn't compromise his faith. And I think about his tender conscience. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 13, we trust or pray that we might have a good conscience. Daniel had a good conscience. And then I want you to think with me in the second place about his uncommon character. Look again at chapter 6. In chapter 6, in verses 4 and 5, the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault why was that? Because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against, the, against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Daniel was a faithful young man, wasn't he? He was a faithful older man. Daniel now well into his 80s. And he is now serving under Darius the Mede. He's a part of the Medes and the Persians. He's among this great empire, this world empire. And Daniel was a faithful, godly man. I want you to think for just a minute about your reputation, the name that you are developing or have developed. Solomon said, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. You can't put a price tag on the reputation that you build in this life if it's for good. I think about Daniel as a young man. And then I think about him as he grew older in life. He was, as we would say, true and steadfast in his, in his character. Unwavering. Remember Paul said, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not vain in the Lord. And then thirdly, I want you to think about his uncompromising conviction. Now I said a minute ago that Daniel wasn't willing to make concessions. He wasn't willing to compromise as a young man. Well, what about as he gets older? I mean, think about Daniel. He has been in the court of the Babylonians. He has served under Nebuchadnezzar. He's seen how politics operates. And many times in the political arena, what do people have to do? They have to make compromises, don't they? Sometimes they'll make concessions. Sometimes they will do things that maybe they really don't agree with. Sometimes they'll do that just to get along or to pass a bill or whatever. Well, Daniel understands how politically things operate. He understands it as an old man as well. But Daniel, 
is, as we would say, uncompromising in his conviction. Consider with me, if you would, what is said in verse 6. So these governors who were against him, and I think really they were jealous or envious of him, they thronged before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. They appealed to his pride, didn't they? They said all the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps and counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal decree and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree. Sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Verse 9 says that King Darius signed the written decree. Well, what about Daniel? His fellow governors... They had already determined that this was a faithful man. There's no way that they're going to be able to find any fault in him unless they target his relationship with God. And that's exactly what they did. But note, if you would, verse 10. In verse 10, we are afforded insight into his resolute actions. The text says that Daniel knew that the writing was signed, and he went home. And in his upper room... With his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day. Now, wait a minute. I thought that there was a decree. I thought that decree was unalterable. I thought the decree was that if anybody bowed and prayed to anyone, with the exception of the king, he'd be thrown into a den of lions. That's exactly right. What did Daniel do? Listen again. Daniel knew that the writing was signed. He went home. In his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Now we talk about his resolute action, his resolve. And I, I also think about his regularity in prayer life. Note, if you would, what is said. As was his custom, since early days. Daniel was a man of prayer. And it didn't matter to him whether or not there was a law on the books that said, if you bow to your God, you'll be cast into a den of lions. So be it. Daniel was willing to suffer the punishment. Why? Because Daniel was faithful to his God. The psalmist in Psalm 55 at verse 17 said, evening, morning, and noon will I pray and cry aloud. The Jews observed three times a day a regular prayer life. Daniel was simply doing what he had always done. Now we talk about the times in which we're living, the country in which we live. And we've said before that this country is not a theocracy. It is a democracy. And we have a government that is in place. And the government, the civil government, is a result of Almighty God. As a matter of fact, it is one of three divine institutions ordained by Almighty God. But there is a movement afoot to strip those of us who belong to the body of Christ, those of us who are Christians, of our rights. 
One of the things that I want to share with you tonight, and I brought the paper with me, and believe it or not, I do have it, but it is a subpoena. And this subpoena comes from the state of Texas, the city of Houston. It is a subpoena that was issued to local preachers in that area. And the basis of the subpoena is, and this came from the mayor of Houston, they were subpoenaing any and all material that would include sermon material that was prepared and that was used against homosexuality. Now, if they did not produce this material, what officials were saying was that they might be held in contempt of court. A lot of fanfare has arisen as a result of this piece of paper. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to do a television program with John DeBerry, who is a representative for the Tennessee State House of Representatives, and B.J. Clark, in which we discussed this subpoena. And I had the opportunity to talk to, on live television, an attorney who is actually a professor at Faulkner University in their law school. And then there was another gentleman that was on the program, Dave Miller, who has done an extensive amount of work studying the Constitution and really what our founding fathers believed and what they thought about Scripture. There was another gentleman that was on the program that is a syndicated radio host. He's on over 100 stations. And he is affiliated with Focus on the Family, if I'm not mistaken. And during the course of our conversation on air, I asked the question, why is it that we as Christians are being used as the whipping post by the so-called left? Because we are. I also asked this question. Why would they subpoena those who are followers of the Christian religion? Why didn't this subpoena have anything to say about those who are followers of the Muslim religion? I mean, after all, they are against homosexuality. Why weren't their clerics subpoenaed? You see, the bottom line is they are bringing the fight to us. Now, somebody, somebody might ask the question, how will that impact us? How will that impact me and other preachers, elderships, those who are church members? What am I going to do? Well, I think first of all we need to understand that what the apostle said in Acts chapter 5 verse 29 is ultimately, really that trumps everything. Because they said we ought to obey God rather than men. We're not trying 
to distribute hate speech. It's not what we're about. I think we can stand up for what we believe, and I believe that we can practice what we believe and do that in a kind and loving way. We don't have to be hateful. We don't have to be ugly. As a matter of fact, you can stand for the truth and do it in a loving way. Paul said, speak the truth in love. We're not against the people. What we are against is the practice. Well, why is that? Because God is the one that said he's against the practice. I was doing a television program not long ago with Brother Garland Elkins, and we were talking about this very thing in that program. Brother Elkins said, you know what, I think if I were a preacher in Houston, here's what I would do. I'd take a copy of the scriptures. And I would underline the passages that have to do with homosexuality. And then I would send that in. And if they want to, if they want to sue somebody, sue Moses. Sue Paul. Sue God. I mean... All I'm doing is saying, this is what the Bible says. Now, I don't think we have to back off the truth just because some are threatening and because some are wanting to take us to court. I think we still stand for truth. I think we stand for truth in a kind and loving way. I don't believe that we have an option to recant or back up. Here's what you need to understand. This is a violation of our rights. Now we talk about our constitutional rights. You have the right to voice your opinion, do you not? That is a God-given blessing in this country. We ought to stand up and speak out. We ought to stand up and say, you know what? This is what I believe. Daniel. Daniel didn't back down. He didn't recant. He didn't compromise. He didn't make concessions. He simply followed the principles that had guided him from his early days. That's all we have to do is keep holding on to truth. Paul said, hold fast the form of sound doctrine which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is just one example. But I wanted to share it with you because I believe that it ties into the book of Daniel. I think what we have to understand is as Christians, whether we realize it or not, maybe we do realize it, we are under assault. I mean, Really? And there are a lot of folks that are not willing to concede to this kind of stuff. I had the opportunity to have dinner the other night with a gentleman that had been a sheriff in Shelby County for almost 30 years. And we were talking about some of the problems that we're facing in this country. And the bottom line is most people are more concerned about being politically correct 
rather than being biblically correct. I want to be biblically correct. I want to be kind and loving. I want to say what the truth has to say, but I don't want to back up, and I don't want to give in. Now, very quickly, you can read the story. Our time is gone. Daniel was unwilling to concede. And so the text tells us that he was cast into that den of lions. And the king, no doubt because of his relationship with Daniel, was hurt. But because that law was unalterable, had to follow through. And the text tells us speaks of the praise of Daniel. And in a very specific way, we have not just the detention of Daniel, but the deliverance of Daniel. And if you drop down and look at verse 16, the king had given the command, and he said, Your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. And that's exactly what happened. God did deliver him. In verse 22, Daniel said, my God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him and also, O king, I've done no wrong before you. Let me just say this. Chapter 6 closes with Darius praising Almighty God. You can go back and look at chapter 2 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar praised the God of heaven. Wouldn't it be something if a preacher in our day could have such an influence that world leaders would praise and reverence the God of heaven. Listen to what this pagan king said. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? And the text says that Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. What a magnificent story. This one guy influenced two world leaders. Think about that. Could you imagine? Could you imagine a preacher in the church today having the opportunity to sit with the president of our country, maybe have the opportunity to stand before the senator house and talk to them about the God of heaven, the God that is revealed in Scripture. And for our president, our senate, our congress to acknowledge that there is but one God and that God is the God of the Bible. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your love and care for us. We're thankful for all the blessings that we enjoy in this life. We're thankful for the freedom that we enjoy and we pray that we will continue to enjoy the freedoms of our land. And Father, we pray that we would be kind and loving and yet steadfast in our defense of what Scripture has to say. Holy Father, we pray that you would bless us in our service to you. Help us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And based upon that belief that Jesus is the Son of God, you would do what they did on Pentecost Day. That you would repent and be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Let God add you to His church, Acts 2.47. Be faithful until death, and the Lord will reward you with the crown of life. If you're here tonight, you're unfaithful, why not come home? Let us pray with you and for you, and God will abundantly pardon according to 1 John 1.9. Come as we stand and sing.